Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. We have got a lot to talk about. We've got a full house for today's show, so we're going to get right to it. Uh, you can uh, watch us, of course, on Facebook Live. You can also tweet us at PoliticsGPB. Uh, if you are going to watch us on Facebook, you probably know by now, go to the GPB News uh, page on Facebook, and we'll be right there. Uh, and as we get the show started, big news if you love soccer, Greg Bluestein. Joseph Martinez has been re-signed for a long-term deal at Atlanta United. It is. Uh, the MLS Cup champions just got back their MVP. Thank goodness. All right, that is Greg Bluestein, the uh, lead political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, or certainly way up there at the top. You've been dogging Brian Kemp for weeks and weeks, and you're staying on him as the session unfolds. Yeah, I was with him this morning for the for the annual Eggs and Issues breakfast. Yeah, and we'll he, talk about that in a little while. Also here in the studio, Ed Lindsay. He's a former state representative from Atlanta. Always glad to have you with us, Ed. Thank you very much for having me. Sitting next to him, Leo Smith, a Republican strategist and former uh, member of the staff of the Georgia Republican Party, now out there on your own as a contractor doing work with political uh, leaders and issues that you are concerned about. Yes, I am, and I'm enjoying it. Chuck Cook, Charles Cook, one of the preeminent immigration lawyers in the Southeast is with us, and we're going to talk immigration later in the show. I'm it glad you're here for that. It just doesn't go away, does it? It does not <laughs> go away. Also joining us um, from uh, NPR in Washington, Kyle Hayes. He's the founder of Peach Pod which is a terrific podcast uh, about Georgia politics. Uh, uh, Kyle may be off in Washington working for a think tank, but he is on top of politics here. What's the newest podcast, Kyle? Uh, we are going to be back on Friday taking a look at the state of the state and the beginning of legislative session. All right, terrific. And also joining us, um, GPB's uh, new political legislative reporter, Donna Lowry, <laughs> joins us from the state capitol. Hi, Donna. How are you? Hi, Bill. It's good to be here. Thank you for taking a little time. I know how busy it is down there, but I'm really sure. glad uh, that you're with us today. In fact, let's get started. And let me turn to both uh, Greg and then you on, on this first uh, story we want to talk about. Uh, Greg, uh, what, what happened yesterday on the first real day of business in the state Senate? Renee Unterman, who uh, had been the chair of the health committee for... Six years. Six years. And the vice chair for 10 years before that. And who has driven a lot of health care legislation that consumers, people out there, citizens, have really cared a lot about, although she drove members of the legislature crazy every now and then. She is dethroned, deposed as chair Demoted, of that committee. Yeah, all those Ds. What happened? Uh, yeah, she was demoted um, yesterday officially. We had heard rumblings about this for months now, um, really, since Casey Cagle uh, lost the runoff to, to Brian Kemp, that this could be in the works. She was a very close ally with Casey Cagle. But yesterday was the day she formally got no notice that she is no longer the chairwoman of that very powerful and influential committee that handles uh, more than 100 pieces of legislation every session. I mean, some of the most significant pieces of, of legislation, anything related to health, goes through that committee. She got another much, much less prominent committee, um, Science and Technology, which only handles a handful of bills, and most of those are, are study committees. And Donna, down there today, um, of all Democratic women uh, lined up to show their support for her. Is that right? Absolutely. And that actually started yesterday when uh, Senator Oreck and and the Senator uh, Unterman got together. And actually, I was trying to interview Senator Ork, and she said, I want to wait and hear what Senator Unterman has to say. So they started yesterday with this. This is, this is something that they're, they're looking at as a woman's issue. It's, not, it's, it's bipartisan in that sense, that they're going to focus on the fact that women, um, even though right now there are four women heading committees and there were two, only two last year, Lieutenant Governor made that very clear, uh, they still feel that they're getting shortchanged in all of this. Uh, Underman was in the well today. Were you there when she spoke? 
I wasn't, but I did listen to some of that. She was pretty fiery. Greg, what what exactly do do we think she uh, uh, said today? Because she's still angry about this. She went to the well to talk about it yesterday, but came back this morning. Yeah, it wasn't just her. It was a series of, of, of other Democratic female yeah. senators um, who backed her up. But she essentially said for all the talk about women taking more leadership positions, uh, for the most part, they're in charge of committees that handle very little legislation. And this was a slap in the face and sexist. Um, and she was backed up not only by uh, many female Democratic senators, but also by Stacey Abrams, who took to Twitter to support mm-hmm. Renee Underman. So, so very interesting things going on. Very strange alliance between one of the most conservative Republicans uh, Republicans in the Senate and Stacey Abrams. Ed, your take on all this. You were you served in the legislature yeah. when uh, she was across the hall in the Senate. Well, um, R- Renee and I actually had a very good relationship. Uh, she and I worked very closely on human trafficking bills and uh, and carried each other's legislation. Uh, she is a fiery individual. She, uh, I wouldn't say she shoots from the hip, but she shoots from the heart a lot. Uh, but, you know, there are times in which she has rubbed people the wrong way over the years. Um, and we'll just have to see how this works out. I would want to point out something that that uh, one of the other women who got a chairmanship uh, was uh, Kay Kirkpatrick, who got the ethics committee. And while folks outside the Gold Dome uh, may not recognize the importance of it, generally speaking, you always put one of your most trusted senators in that committee uh, chairmanship role, whether it be the House or the Senate. Joe Wilkinson held that job for about 14 years in the House Mm -hmm. uh, at the insistence of the speaker. And the fact that Kay Kirkpatrick uh, was given that position uh, shows that she has, uh, in a very short period of time, garnered a lot of trust from her fellow senators. Okay, but Leo, if if um, Republicans are—look, again, it is quite correct that there are now more women chairing committees in the Senate than there had been previously, one of whom is a Democrat, Jen Jordan, who is a— panelist on this show on occasion, was just here last week, uh, was appointed to uh, chair a committee. Uh, But uh, Unterman is going to make a lot of noise about this, and Republicans, we're going to talk about another issue in a minute that also is targeting, in many ways, uh, the women's vote. This isn't, it strikes me, it's a strange way to start a session. Well, I think at this point in the session, people aren't thinking about 2020 and trying to garner the woman's vote. I think they're talking about legislation, legislative priorities. And I think they're th- thinking about who's going to work for Kemp. And in the case of this with uh, Renee Unterman, I think this is one of those, the enemy of my enemy is my friend situation, <laughs> because uh, right now, the Democrats are going to side with per- pretty much anybody who's, who's uh, antagonistic or acrimonious with Kemp. And we might remember that Senator Unterman is as Ed has said, I mean, she's very passionate and she's very passionate about the issues she works on. And she's had some rumblings with Brian Kemp back in July. Greg wrote an article about um, uh, someone making a comment about her mental stability. And that was attributed to Brian to, but, to Kemp. But Greg, you you made it clear that this was not uh, something that Brian Kemp behind the scenes worked on uh, for, to get her out of this position in the Senate. And in her talk yesterday in which she railed against being removed from the committee, she apologized and said she was ready to yeah, work with the actually, new governor. She actually brought up that uh, that article, too, and, and several others that I wrote. Um, they appear to have buried the hatchet way back when because both the campaign said very nasty things about her and she called for a federal investigation of him. Mm. So, you know, ter- tense words were exchanged, um, but it seems like they had moved on. But uh, this, from from everything I understand, this had nothing to do with Brian Kemp, um, even though she made it clear that they've moved on. Um, this was about the Senate GOP leadership. Kyle, um, Leo, Kyle, um, Leo says that this nobody's thinking about 2020 downtown. They're thinking about legislating. That strikes me as an idealistic statement. Uh, it seems to me that Republicans over the next two years here in Georgia are going to have to be thinking about women voters almost every day, given that they are right now in shaky standing with women. I think that, I mean, I, I, I agree with you, Bill. It would seem so. But the fact is, the results that we had this last time showed that we didn't think about it very right. much. Well, right. Let's, Kyle, what do you say <laughs> well, to that? The, the other piece of that, I think, is that it takes away an opportunity for Republicans in the Senate to have Renee Unterman be a star in terms of a big legislative priority for them. You know, she's the chair of, she was, she's been removed as chair of Health and Human Services. 
promises and uh, Governor Kemp's agenda on health care, I think, has been vague at best. And But there are real challenges in health care that this committee would have to address. And uh, now she is not going to be somebody who gets to lead it through that process and be somebody who can make her mark on legislation that could then be turned around she and appeal. She was one of the highest profile women under the Gold Dome during her tenure on the health committee. It's a great point. Um, Donna, another odd thing happened yesterday in terms of thinking about issues of people consider to some extent women's issues. Governor Kemp, his first executive order, he made it clear he was establishing new rules and regulations largely based on reporting at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution on how sexual harassment complaints have been handled or mishandled, as it has been has been the case in some instances, uh, sex harassment. And so Kemp said, new rules, we're getting tough, we're not going to stand for this, And on the same day, the state Senate put a two-year limit on reporting of sexual harassment. There's some dissonance there, Donna. Oh, absolutely. And um, believe me, the women who were speaking today are thinking about that, too, because that's that's something that Unterman actually, she was on the floor yesterday talking about sexual harassment and kind of alluded to the fact that she may have experienced some in the uh, recent years, or in the past year, she said, actually, and that she would talk about that more today. Uh, although today, it, the focus was certainly more on just women in general and, and powerful positions. But yes, it is interesting that there was no limit before on when to report sexual harassment in the Senate, and now there's that two-year limit, and the feeling is that that's going to stop a lot of people from actually reporting So there's going to be a big fight when it comes to that. But it also is interesting that the first one of the first orders by by the new governor focused on sexual harassment, which tells you about the pressure that he's feeling on that. And it's a big issue. Chuck Cook, one of the oddities of this Senate action is that the uh, the newspaper quoted the new lieutenant governor, you know, the president of the Senate, Senate, as saying, I didn't know they were going to do that. It, it, it <laughs> seems amazing to me that, I mean, I guess this speaks to where he comes from, of course, but that he just had no idea that this stuff was going to go on. What's he been doing for the last six weeks? Has he been, has he been elected? Not talking to anybody? Well, you know, there, there's a lot of uh, fractiousness in the Senate and GOP Senate right now. He, is, he came from the House. Yeah. Um, he was not one of their own in a way. Uh, he was not expected to win. He was the underdog. And um, there's a lot of relationships to be built, I think, between between him and the other Senate leaders. But I was part of that interview, and I asked him several times. I said, so you you were off guard <laughs> by this. He says, yeah, really. He was not part of that decision. He was actually being inaugurated. Uh, exactly. He was, the same he was time, getting ready right? to, at the same time that this this was all – he was at the prayer service when when, the, when this was voted on. So. He's, he's, he told you – I believe that he's looking into some action that might be taken to to change this decision. I, I don't know this that, is not like statutory. This is a Senate rule, correct? Yeah, I don't know that he he has the the power to to convince his caucus to to, right. to go back to look. But right. he said he's going to review the rule because he wasn't even all that clear about what what the ins and outs of the rule um, at the time. It's he just, just said, stunning. Nobody told him, "Hey, we're going to do hey, this." And I way. cannot yeah. imagine. <laughs> I cannot imagine if you're Governor Kemp. Uh, and you've just taken this uh, step that you'd promised during the campaign. It's yes. your first executive order. Uh, you, I, I do think you might call up your new lieutenant governor and say, Jeff, who's in charge over there? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think more importantly, we need to focus on the fact that the governor uh, has returned some uniformity mm-hmm. uh, to the executive branch where most of the problems uh, that have been uh, reported on very well by the AJC took place, primarily because each of those different departments uh, handled sexual harassment many times in very different ways. So in effect, you were having a Tower of Babel there. Uh, the governor very quickly in his first two days uh, in office has has put in place some uniformity so that uh, there's a greater feeling of fairness for women to come forward when they feel like they've been harassed. Leo, um, give you the final word on, on this. Are, do Republicans have a little communication uh, uh, issue they've got to get get resolved here between the governor's office, say, and the, certainly the Senate, if not the House as well? You know, I think being that I was visiting one of their offices uh, on just last Thursday, they were still hanging curtains and moving around furniture. Um, I I think they're still catching their uh, breath from a very contentious election cycle. And they have the right to do that. By the way, we talked about it very briefly before we went on the air. We need to point out 
that uh, Jeff Duncan, you know, uh, Greg points out that uh, Duncan comes out of the House, so he's got already to uh, find his way to make peace with members of the Senate. We can never overlook the contentiousness between senators and House members downtown. Um, and we should remind people that uh, Casey Cagle, when he became lieutenant governor, the House, the Senate leadership uh, basically stripped him of <laughs> almost all of the duties that the president of the Senate would usually take. And there was a much lower profile effort to strip J- Jeff Duncan of some yeah. of his yeah. powers yeah. that, that kind of got derailed that back failed. in December. That yeah. failed. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, no, no, there, there was uh, some concerns raised and uh, a, a vote of the Senate uh, Republican caucus was taken and Jeff Duncan prevailed. All right, let's move on to uh, eggs and issues. Uh, Donna, every year, one of the biggest and most awaited events uh, early in the session is the Eggs and Issues Breakfast. They do it down at the World Congress Center. Thousands attend. It's run by the Georgia Chamber of Commerce. The governor, lieutenant governor, the speaker, uh, it it is their opportunity to give a message, to lay out to whatever extent they're ready to the major uh, agenda items they want to promote during uh, the session. And Brian Kemp, Donna, today did, in fact, give us some pretty good uh, uh, information about what he wants to do, including $69 million for a school safety plan. Tell us a little bit about what the governor said. Yes, he certainly served up what they were interested in for breakfast, and that was a preview of things. And one of them was on school safety. And what it does is it offers money, $69 million, to the school systems in Georgia. It'll divide up to about $30,000 each for them to decide on a local level what to do with that money. And that's important because it comes on the heels of what Governor Deal did last year in terms of school safety. Uh, the other part with school safety dealt with mental health, which was uh, uh, which is something that schools have been asking for. So he did not give specifics, but he talked about getting some mental health counselors into the school districts. Now, when people talk about counselors in schools, those counselors deal with helping kids get on to college or go on to careers. But and a lot they don't focus on mental health issues. And he recognizes the need to focus on those things. And one of the one of the great, the most um, I, I think important quotes that he made today that probably stuck out with a lot of people. He says he said the classroom should be a safe haven for students and not a hunting ground for school shooters. So uh, school safety is going to be a big issue for him. And this sixty nine million dollars is good news for school districts. Um, he also, uh, Greg Bluestein, uh, said he was going to put uh, some half a million dollars into an anti-gang initiative. He talked about gangs, mm-hmm. uh, as did Chris Carr, his attorney general, throughout their each of their campaigns. You got these. These were both campaign promises. Uh, all he did, kind of, did was put a put a put a finer point on what exactly they'll 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 entail. Uh, the school safety plan was actually going to be ninety million dollars, and he still might do the whole ninety million dollars. But but um, these are these are. Um, so, sort of uh, pots of money that schools can can use as they see fit, whether or not um, they want to use it for personnel or for capital improvements, and also things that Democrats are going to find very hard to uh, to disagree with. I, I chatted with a few Democratic leaders afterwards, and all of them said, "Yeah, they applauded the whole school safety part of it, um, and couldn't find too much fault with it." Um, Donna Lowry, uh, Tom Faust uh, tells me that you have got to go uh, get to ready for our newscast uh, later today. And I assume you're going to be reporting on lawmakers tonight. Donna, we look forward to having you occasionally visit with us on Political Rewind. Thanks so much for being with us today and welcome to the GPB News team. Thank you very much. Look forward to it. Um, All right, everybody. Uh, Greg just said an important thing. Let me start with you, Chuck. Uh, these are issues that Democrats are going to have a hard time taking issue with. You know, if, if Brian Kemp's going to govern from the middle, uh, you could get a lot of stuff done in this state. Uh, we can move the state forward in a very positive direction. I mean, that, we need that. I mean, especially after this last contentious election, we need that in this state. And with an election coming up for senator in a couple of years, uh, that could set the stage for the Republicans could keep that seat if, if that middle holds. As, as a, a point in, in, in that uh, discussion, Ed, and then you take it from there, uh, State Representative Mary Margaret Oliver, uh, Decatur, was quoted probably by Bluestein. Uh, you have her saying, Greg, my three school districts can benefit from new money for camera and cameras and security equipment. And she welcomed 
uh, the governor on this one. Ed? Well, you know, Mary Margaret <laughs> Oliver, my, my, my fellow church member, I always like to tout that, uh, you know, uh, you know, and she, she kind of uh, follows what the other Democrats have said. The fact of the matter is, I think that you, we're seeing that uh, Governor Kemp is following the, the role model set by uh, Governor Deal, in which he's going to be uh, working primarily on on very important governing issues or, or what I like to sometimes call train run on time issues of, of taking a look at a hard look at the serious issues facing our state, whether it be underpaid teachers or school safety or economic development or rural health care, which mm-hmm. he also talked about uh, in his speech today. And, you know, those are a lot of the key issues that folks on both sides of the political aisle agree needs to be tackled and they're near the top of everyone's list. And, you know, and that's the same model that uh, Governor Deal uh, governed successfully on uh, for eight years. Kyle, um, you, you're in an interesting position because you pay very close attention and talk to uh, leaders here in Georgia for your podcast. So you know uh, uh, as much as anyone could imagine you can about Georgia politics from your uh, perch in Washington. But you also see how the state is being viewed from Washington, D.C. So I'm assuming that you have heard that you understand that Brian Kemp has some ways to go, and he kind of referred to it in his inaugural speech to convince the country that the kind of uh, dark image that was painted of him during this campaign is not who he really is. He does want to repair that image, I would think. Yeah, and I think from people nationally looking on from Georgia would be surprised, I think, at the end of uh, Governor Kemp's first term if he governs from the center and governs more like a governor deal did. But I think you can also uh, come to that conclusion by looking at his rhetoric in the primary and, and where he goes with that rhetoric once he's governor now. I think one of the things as it relates to school safety that's most important that he's being noncommittal on is his noncommittal attitude towards constitutional carry. If he did constitutional carry in conjunction with this school safety program, I don't think it would do much to stem the supply of guns and deal with a gun violence issue. But his backing away from that, something he endorsed in the primary, may open up a window for them to make progress here. Leo? No, I I, I agree that... um, Brian Kemp is a conservative. He's made that very clear many times over, more than I've heard a governor mention during campaigns ever. But uh, I think that he's also pragmatic in his conservatism, and I think we're going to see some good policy leadership that people will feel Georgia's in good hands. And his first two addresses, what what are the things we haven't heard at all of? Any mention of President Donald Trump? Yeah. And any mention of any social issues like guns or abortion or religious liberty. liberty. He's what, staying away from all those. And I think that's that's what he's going to do continuing till tomorrow through the state of state address. Well, of course, Ed, uh, right here on this show just a week ago, uh, Speaker Ralston basically sent a message loud and clear that he's not interested in taking up a bill that would allow people in Georgia to carry guns without permits. I Now, the governor can pick a fight with the speaker if he yeah. wants to on this issue. And maybe maybe he feels he owes it to his voters uh, to do that. But that remains to be seen. Well, historically, like I said, I think he'll, he'll follow the deal example. And I, I do slightly disagree. I don't so much think he's governing from the middle so much as he's a he's a he's a governing conservative, which means that you get things done. Uh, but Governor Deal followed the same model, uh, and, and I would dare anyone to go back and look and look at some of the Deal's uh, past uh, record, and then what he got to be governor, and see that much difference between him and and Governor Kemp. But both have have whether well, Kemp is following Deal's example, letting the legislature deal with those those uh, div- more divisive issues and having him uh, deal with those issues uh, that have that broader impact Greg, on the entire d- state. did I make a comment you wanted to amplify upon or well, yeah, you mentioned picking way? a fight with Speaker Alston. Yeah, he picking did, a fight's the wrong language, well, no, by the way. But he go did ahead. something important today, too. He telegraphed the House's intention to create a new panel focused on arts and entertainment, which is a key um, uh, concern for the film industry about religious liberty. So so he, the Speaker's already on the record with his very grave concerns about you know, liberty. Now we've got this That's title. a yeah. really important point now because it goes with what Kyle is saying about how the state is viewed. There are people out there, and I think they're marginal right now, but we'll see, in the entertainment business who are tweeting. I think Alyssa Milano, the Hollywood actor, mm-hmm. was saying, we better boycott Georgia. They're yeah, saying, that's it's not going to happen. <laughs> Nevertheless, the speaker's decision to move forward with this certainly is a 
a welcome to those well, people who it, might feel alienated. Well, just the rumbling that the that the industry, which is now a major industry in Georgia, would just walk away one day. That's enough to scare just about anybody in any political party. Uh, and it's not that Hollywood runs the state legislatures that we have to be careful how issues are presented and how processes are run here. Kyle, I get that politics certainly is going to could play a role in this, but the tax breaks that Georgia offers to the entertainment industry, to the movie studios, those speak a lot louder, I think, than some of the social concerns people may have about a, a Brian Kemp, who still has got to prove how he's going to stand on those issues. It does. I think studios are going to look at the bottom line in terms of where, what states they can go and where they can shoot for cheapest. And, and that's the best way to keep those studios here in Georgia. All right, let's do this. Let's get a break out of the way. We're going to talk about immigration, among other things, when we come back, because we have Chuck Cook with us. But before we get to immigration, um, Johnny Isaacson was on the floor of the United States Senate and uh, made a pretty strong statement about his anger, I think is a fair word, over the inability of the uh, Congress and the president to make a deal. And he talked about it in terms of some concerns about Georgia. We'll get to that in a minute. You know, selling a car can be a hassle, but donating it is a whole different story. Let us take it off your hands or off your driveway and turn it into public radio and maybe even a tax deduction. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the host of Marketplace, and here is how to donate. Call 877-GPB-1-CAR or donate securely online at gpb.org slash cars. And thanks. Who are the people whose names you see at the end of a movie or a TV show? I'm Kalina Bowler. I've worked for years behind the scenes in Georgia's booming film industry. In my GPB podcast, I meet the people who help bring art to life, from actors to stuntmen to camera operators. Join me for the credits. Subscribe at thecreditspodcast.com. Welcome back to uh, Political Rewind. Charles Cook, Leo Smith, Ed Lindsay, Greg Bluestein are here in the studio. Kyle Hayes joins us from NPR in Washington. Let's um, play a soundbite. Johnny Isaacson, as I said before the break, was on the floor of the Senate. He is really sick about and disgusted <laughs> with the deadlock over uh, the government shutdown. And he wanted to uh, make his feelings known loud and clear. He spoke for about, oh, four and a half, five minutes. We're going to play just about a minute or so of what he had to say. I just want to appeal to everybody who's listening to this, all my colleagues. I love all of you. We can all tell, play political jokes. We can talk about the Democrats did this, the Republicans did that. But the fact of the matter is we're not doing a damn thing while the American people are, are suffering. The TSA agents I talked to in Atlanta today, they're doing it out of the goodness of their heart because a lot of their guys are step, are, and ladies are not showing up for work and there's going to be more of them. we got a Super Bowl coming to Atlanta, Georgia in about three weeks. The biggest tourism event in the world this year. What if the largest airport in the world that's going to bring all the people to the largest football game in the world goes out, goes out of business because the TSA didn't strikes? Then you've just cost millions of dollars to the United States of America, my home city of the city of Atlanta and others. So we're not winning any, any points with anything. A lady waiting with me to get on the plane just laughed when I gave my answer to the TSA agent. And I turned to her and almost said, why are you laughing? And I said, you know, I understand why you're laughing because I can't explain it either. So we need to understand what we're doing. Why we're doing it doesn't make any sense. What we're doing doesn't make any sense. But what does make sense is to make a resolve to go out and solve the problem. And when I listened to the answers I was giving these people, who are good old American citizens, for why we can't get the government open, I said, you know, if I was them, I wouldn't vote for me either. So let's get to work. Let's stop blaming everybody else. Let's, let's put the blame where it belongs on all our sh shoulders collectively. Let's do what good elected officials are supposed to do, and let's make a deal. Johnny Isaacson on the floor of the United States Senate. Kyle, uh, an accompanying note this morning, uh, Speaker Pelosi uh, uh, essentially uh, told Donald Trump, um, "Don't bother to. Do, we don't. We're, we're going to disinvite you from giving your State of the Union speech up here in two weeks, which is in her, her prerogative as Speaker. She can invite or disinvite a president. He is required by law to give a State of the Union address, but he can write it. And uh, she cited Kyle." security concerns, the fact that it takes a lot of security to protect the president and all of the members of Congress gathered for a State of the Union. Uh, 
Kind of a bold move by Speaker Pelosi, Kyle. Yeah, and it's yet another example of how disruptive this shutdown has been. And we're currently at a place right now where everything feels frozen. It feels stuck. It's unclear what deal the president would accept with the exception of the $5 billion for the border wall. And it's very clear that Democrats aren't willing to give that to him. So finding a middle ground between those two uh, positions seems uh, very unlikely at this point. So let's go back to uh, Johnny Isaacson, Ed, talking about the Super Bowl. Uh there, one of the concerns is that although people will arrive for the Super Bowl over a period of days, yeah. they're pretty much going to leave on the Monday morning afterward. And we saw what happened on Monday, this past Monday morning at Hartsfield-Jackson with hour and a half lines because TSA agents were calling in sick. That could be a nightmare. It it, it could be. Uh, and, you know, it gets back to... Uh, you know, this this was Johnny Isaacson at his best. Mm-hmm. Johnny Isaacson is what I call a governing conservative. Uh, he is someone who believes that we ought to uh, make government work. Uh, may disagree sometimes as to what government should do, but what government is doing, government should work. And for someone like Johnny Isaacson to be watching folks on both sides, uh, uh, Nancy Pelosi on one side, Donald Trump on the other, and some other folks in between, to both sides be sort of retreating to their base rather than coming and sitting down and going, look, neither side is is going to get everything they want. Uh, 2020 is a long way away. We got people that need to be doing their job. And quite frankly, we got jobs that need to be be done. Uh, and Johnny Oxen, I think, is delivering a message to everyone going, uh, I got elected to get things done, and I'm frustrated, and I applaud him for that. Leo? No, I, I agree with um, Ed that you know Isaacson was doing the leadership we expect. And I sense the frustration that's about that, but I sense that Isaacson must also be concerned about this whole border wall and this shutdown issue as well. Nothing's being done there. And that, you know, I just wish the, the Democrats would present that $1.6 that they presented before as a proposal to— to to Donald Trump and put the onus on him well, to reject have. it. I mean, they're passing budget resolutions. They had previously offered him uh, new money for his border wall. They just didn't want to do the 5.7, uh, Greg. And the president has remained intransigent on this. And although we know that many people are telling, maybe not many, but a, an important handful who he listens to are telling him that he's got to stay the course because his base demands it, uh, he's apparently not budging anytime soon. And there's been no sign that any sort of short-term concession will kind of say without that money, that without that significant amount of money in the, in the budget for, for a border wall will, will save him between now and then, even though there is a small group of, of senators like Senator Isaacson, uh, Republican senators who are signaling that, hey, there might be some sort of interim compromise to get the government going again. All right, Ed, this all brings us to an area that you have spent your life's work uh, dealing with, and that's uh, immigration. Mm -hmm. Now, a great deal of your work is helping people who are already in the country. Let's fix fix the problem. Let's do it the right way kind of thing. Right. Right. But you also obviously know a lot about what's happening at the border, what's happening with the undocumented coming. So first of all, President Trump uh, says we have a national crisis on our hands. Do we? No. And why do you say we don't? Why do you think he's wrong? Well, you know, this really goes back to semantics a lot. Like, nobody really knows what Trump says means when he says the wall. Nobody really knows what he means. Sometimes he means concrete, sometimes he means steel, sometimes he means who knows what he means. Some, we don't know what he means when he says $5.7 because they've literally never explained what the money's for. If Trump switches to border security... That's a no-brainer. The, the Democrats would pass $5.7 billion in border security, mixture of all kinds of things, including fencing and wall, in a heartbeat. Uh, but Trump's not willing to negotiate on a lot of this stuff. Uh, but the real crisis here is actually a humanitarian problem caused by the way we are currently enforcing immigration laws. Uh, we have to understand that, that immigration itself is not isolated. There's a bigger picture to the way the whole process works. Most of the people that, that you hear about in the caravans, these that are going to come and destroy America somehow, they're literally waiting in on the street or in football stadiums in, in Tijuana because the Trump administration decided to start doing what's called metering. 
Um, generally, U.S. immigration law says if you want asylum, you can walk up to a port of entry, knock on a door and say, I want asylum, and we have to accept your obligation. That's U.S. law uh, that you'll find in the Immigration Nationality Act. You'll find it in the treaties that we signed on refugees and asylum. We have to, we have to accept them. The Trump administration says, well, these are too many people. We can only do 50 a day. So 50 a day in Tijuana, which I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of Tijuana. It is a massive port facility. Uh, and it's working its way all the way down to the Texas, where, the te where Texas and New Mexico end, 50 people a day. Uh, when you have 1,000 people showing up, they're going to be sitting there. They're not going anywhere. So now you cause them to say, oh, I can't afford to stay here or it's dangerous to be here. I'm going to walk down two miles, three miles, ten miles, and I'm going to get a ladder. I'm going to hop the fence that's over there. What they're doing when they hop the fence is literally standing there. Because all the way from the ocean in San Diego to the border of Texas, not only do we have fencing from the vast majority of that already and walls, but it's all mined with sensors. I hate to use the word mined, but it's all sensors. So when you step a foot on that side of the U.S. line, Border Patrol is going to be there generally in the matter of minutes. It's a great picture from the weekend of a Border Patrol agent literally catching a child being thrown off the wall with the mother standing on the U.S. side. Um, so, yeah, there's a crisis, but it's a crisis we can easily fix. All right, so I want to look at uh, just one uh, piece of data that I think is worth throwing out and then opening the floor to everybody to talk about this. U.S. Customs and Border Protection, of course, issues reports on apprehensions. This is their own website you're yeah, looking at. I, yeah. I, this is, comes from the official government website of U.S. Uh, border uh, Customs and Border Protection. Protection. And if you look at the fiscal years from 14 to 18, from 2014 to 2018, there are fluctuations back and forth, usually from about 550,000 apprehensions to a low of the mid 400,000 apprehensions. In fiscal uh, 2018, there were 521,000 people apprehended, but that isn't an exceptional number. It's, it's really in line with what we've seen over the years. So, everybody, what does that tell us? Well, start with you. It's historically low. I mean, in 2017, they had the lowest number of border apprehensions since Nixon was president. 415,000. Since Nixon was president. Why, and why do we talk about apprehensions? Because they, we have no way of knowing how many people got through. So we, they, they use the apprehension number as the statistics. So if we're catching 2 million, as they used to do under George Bush and Bill Clinton, that's a huge number because you know far more got through. 400,000, you know, fewer people are attempting to come illegally to the United States because, one, it's harder, two, it's more dangerous, and three, it's far more expensive to, to come in because of the walls and the, and the additional Border Patrol agents that are in place. And, and by the way, to put these figures that we just talked about for the last four or five years in perspective, uh, factcheck.org points out that in the year 2000, 1.64 million apprehensions occurred at the southern border. So, Leo, the numbers yeah, have yeah, dropped, and then you... You end. know, I have to admit, um, you know, I'm assuming you're a professor, Dr. Cook? A professor and right, a lawyer, right, right. yes. So, when I listen to Professor Cook, I think I'm listening like a common man, and I'm my head's spinning because, on one hand, there isn't a crisis, but then there is a humanitarian crisis. And I think that's what we're missing here, that when the citizenship here, that, there, that Trump say there's a crisis... They are saying there's a crisis. Now, you speak of one crisis, a humanitarian crisis. They are suggesting that a wall that decreases the attractive nuisance of being able to come across and get across easily helps solve the humanitarian crisis that you're speaking of. But that, that is and, a and point. And it's a great point, but yeah. it's also not true. Because the humanitarian crisis, people actually waiting on the other side of the border to come in. That's the humanitarian problem. People, the numbers coming in are not going to be detracted by a wall because we already know that now this year more than 60 percent of the new undocumented didn't, didn't come illegally. But really, the bigger problem is, are, are we allowing the president to not follow the law as it applies to asylum seekers? There are multiple issues involved here. There is an argument to be made that one reason why you're seeing few people trying to cross the border illegally is because of President Trump's historic position regarding uh, immigration. That said, you're absolutely right regarding the humanitarian crisis uh, because we are seeing more and more people, uh, you know, 10, 20 years ago, we were, we were seeing individuals uh, trying to enter this country. Now we're seeing uh, families trying to enter the country. And that, of course, is, is adding to the humanitarian crisis. 
what is frustrating to me, uh, and this gets back to to my history in the legislature and my history as a public official, is more and more we're seeing Congress becoming a debating society rather than a entity that is actually getting things done. Uh, you know, uh, while I disagreed with the uh, uni- with with the uh, the way in which uh, President Obama uh, chose to deal with DACA or, or or Dreamers, I do agree that we should be doing something about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just believe that that should have been a congressional action. So, uh, a large part of of my irritation with that whole situation was that Congress should have fixed that, and Congress should be fixing the a lot of the issues when it comes to how we'd be dealing with the refugees and everything else. And that's my frustration. We can we can deal with refugees if Congress gets involved. We can deal with, quite frankly, one of the big issues that we need to be doing going back. Uh, to where these folks are coming from is working with those countries to make th- their the lives of people who are choosing to flee those countries better so they don't yeah. flee those countries. Um, and, and, and a whole laundry list. You pointed to, and I don't mean to... to, to to, to suddenly try to dominate, but there's a whole long list. You pointed out the fact that uh, what is it? Sixty percent of the folks who are here come illegally now come with visas. Came here and then overstayed their visa. Well, we're not enforcing that the way we should. So we there's have... a whole laundry list of things that are that are happening here. But we have a Congress, and I blame both con- both parties here. And this is part of uh, Johnny Isaacs's frustration because he's a he's a can do get it done guy. Is we're not Congress is not. Governing, they are debating. Kyle, um, one of the things because I think I think I'm right that in your in the think tank you work with uh, uh, day by day up there, you're you're big numbers cruncher. You know how to crunch data. Um, we're hearing now from the White House itself that they have underestimated the economic impact of this shutdown, and it is very soon going to start actually cutting away at the uh, at the growth figures for the economy in the coming year, and that's the worst news. Trump could ever ask for because he has set such high expectations for revenue growth, and this is undermining that, yes? I think it's the worst news he could ask for, but maybe the best news he could ask for. You know, as it relates to the emergency declaration over this issue, there was some reporting in the Wall Street Journal showing that even Trump administration officials knew that an emergency declaration wouldn't get held up in court and that there wasn't actually a realistic emergency here, and that the idea was to use the emergency declaration as a get-out-of-shutdown-free card. And I think these economic numbers present another opportunity for the president to have a get-out-of-shutdown-free card to look to his supporters and say, look, we tried, but we can't give up this wonderful Trump economy uh, to build the wall right now. And so we'll have to you know, agree to a deal and try another day. It may be a way out for him. If it goes that route, I expect to see some more pushback from Senate Republicans. We've already heard a number of them say that they hope he doesn't take the emergency route because it sets a precedent. Yeah, and, well, and there's a lot of huge worries, um, even from his conservative allies, that, that this could be a precedent that a Democratic president can use as well in the future. It's, um, it's a really bad idea. And to do something like that. But you know, getting back to the other point on the immigration, I think is vital. Remember, there was a deal last year to give Trump $25 billion, the actual cost of the actual wall, in return for DACA, a path to, a 10-year path to residency for DACA, and he rejected it. Uh, he rejected it, and the House refused to vote on it. And he rejected it because Congress would not agree to eliminate most of what is today legal immigration. All right, I've got to, I'm sorry to interrupt you, uh, but I've got to get Chuck to our final break of the show. We'll do that and come back and continue this conversation. On the next Fresh Air, how immigration policy has evolved and led to the current debates over border security. NPR correspondent Tom Jelton says, until the 1960s, the rules favored immigrants from Northern Europe. The 1965 Immigration Act made us a more diverse country, and Jelton says raises new questions about what it means to be an American. His book is Nation of Nations. Join us. Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3, right here on GPB. You can also listen online at gpbnews.org. I'm Pam Bauer. I'm director of brand development for Callaway Resort and Gardens in Pine Mountain, Georgia's authentic outdoor getaway and escape. We underwrite with GPB because we know that the listeners are very motivated, enthusiastic, and educated. We know that we are going to be able to touch a wide array of people who are curious and and will want to learn more about Callaway. So it's a perfect fit. To find out more about becoming a corporate sponsor, email sponsorship at gpb.org. 
Here we go, back on Political Rewind. Boy, this is a, this conversation does not stop in the studio. <laughs> Just because you can't hear us, they keep talking. But let's bring all of you in the audience into this conversation. Um, here's, here's some interesting things about this, uh, uh, Chuck. Uh, the, um, the shutdown has affected our immigration courts. This is the best, the it, most ironic part of all of They've closed the immigration courts. Because the judges have had to postpone thousands of hearings. They've already got a backlog of like 800,000, a million uh, cases. So uh, think, think about this, Bill. So because of the shutdown, uh, one of those agencies affected is the Department of Justice. Of course, some of the federal courts are closing cases or putting setting them aside that the government's involved in. But the federal immigration judges are employees of the Department of Justice. And so they are literally not getting paid. Some of them are working for detained. Emergency cases are detained people. But the vast majority of people aren't detained. And right now in the court docket, there's over one million cases pending hearings. There's only 375 judges at all. And since the shutdown, almost 90,000 cases have been postponed. To give you an idea what this means, I had a client that was detained in 2014, was bonded out, was then set for his initial hearing in 2017. The judge did not show up that day because he was sick. It was postponed till last week for his first actual hearing on the case, and the judge wasn't there. And it will be, it will be postponed now till 2021. Those are the next dates that are available for a first hearing in the case. So, and, and every week, ICE is, ICE is working. They're not getting paid, but they're working. They're literally adding cases every single day to the backlog. This is so counterproductive from an immigration enforcement perspective that it makes no sense whatsoever. Tom Faust wants to know if your client's been in the country all those years. Of course he's been here. Of course here. he's been of course here. He's been here. Uh, can, you know, can I ask a quick question to Chuck? Why on earth are they taking? Let's just in, in good times. Yeah. Put aside the the the, the impact of, of the. Why on earth is it taking three years or four years to get your first hearing? Uh, because I mean, the courts don't have enough judges. Yeah. Uh, Congress froze the hiring. As remember, the 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 ideal in Congress was yeah. they're going to keep passing budgets, but there'd be no increase in anything. Well, that meant there was no increase in judges. And what most people don't give Obama credit for is he was the deportation president. Yeah. He put more people into deportations and deported more people than any president in U.S. history. But, but even in, in the situation you just mentioned, the, the, you, your client was, was stopped in 14, mm. told, told of it, and then 17. That was during the Obama. And I'm not trying to blame one side or the other, but to the average citizen. Why would it take three years? Too, yeah. But the average citizen is going to be sitting there going, wait a minute. Why can't you do this in 30 so, days? Greg, because it's not criminal court and you don't have a system that works. Yeah. So, Greg, here's another thing that's happening while the shutdown is underway. Uh, there are something like 2,000. Again, these are figures from, uh, from the government itself. Mm -hmm. There are something like 2,000 migrants per day being taken into custody by Customs and Border Protection uh, officers. Um, they have nowhere to put them. So they're turning them loose in the streets of El Paso, Yuma, and other border cities because everything's shut down. It's like a crisis folding in on itself. Yeah. It, it really is. And again, with, with no—also, you know, pity the federal workers who are working for the IRS, 30,000 or so of them who were called back to duty yesterday without pay— to, to process all of our refunds. So if you get a light, little lighter <laughs> refund check, you might know why. So there's just ramifications. You know, this, the, the sadness of this all is, you know, people are motivated generally by two things, pain and pleasure. And we sometimes think about just moving everybody towards pleasure. But the fact is, is that Trump probably believes that, hey, I'll let them feel the pain. Let's feel the pain. Let's experience the pain. And maybe we'll get serious about this issue. Kyle, what are you thinking as you hear this conversation? I am thinking about what what Mitch McConnell is thinking. I think <laughs> yep. he, as the leader of the Republicans in the Senate, has to have a breaking point in terms of when he may turn on the president and get Republicans to override a veto. But as of uh, now, he has sat out this fight and waited for Democrats right, so, to make so a deal me, with the president. I'm glad you mentioned that because this is a subject we haven't touched on. And let me st go ahead and start with you since you raised it, Kyle. Isn't one of the majority leader's main responsibilities as a political leader to make sure his members are protected. 
And if he understands, I mean, Mitch McConnell himself was primaried from the right uh, not long ago. So it, it perhaps, rather than thinking about his larger, perhaps, duty to the country, he's thinking, I don't want to expose my members to a vote on this and risk that uh, they will then be uh, have primary opposition to the right, Ed? Well, you know, th- that's a good point about what, what type of pressure points would get to McConnell. But let me ask Kyle this question, because everyone's always talking about where's the breaking point for Republicans? Where's the breaking point for Democrats? Kyle? And, and I'm sort of yeah. curious about that one, too. When do they feel the heat enough uh, to want to, to wanna cut a deal as well? I think Democrats uh, feel a lot of freedom to explore how far that breaking point can go. I think they are less inclined to make a deal based on the results of the 2018 elections and polling showing that the wall is not getting more popular among anybody who's not a Republican. I think they feel emboldened by the numbers on the ground in a way that Republicans, I don't think, do. But right or wrong, you know, there's got to be a lot of of workers who are going to go, wait a minute, you know, uh, I may agree with you philosophically, but at some point, you know, you got to help me get this government open. You know, uh, you know, th- this sounds like a good issue, but why, why don't we get the job? Get, get Greg, the government we, open Greg, we, we need a poll from the Atlanta Constitution. You've got the money to do it over there at the paper about how Georgians are feeling about all this and whether they blame Democrats or Republicans. Well, you ask, we do have a poll coming out this weekend. <laughs> but, uh, but when we ordered it, when we ordered it weeks ago, we figured, oh, the shutdown will probably be old news by then. Oh. We're working with UGA, so we have it's it's mostly based on state focused issues like voting rights and the economy. But we wish we could have had that question now. All right, we are just. About out of time uh, for today's show. I know we've only begun to scratch the surface, oh my Chuck Cook, on this. So you'll come back and of continue course, keeping always. us. It's not uh, going to go away. No, man. unfortunately, it's not. But I do. I, I wanted to stop just a touch early uh, because Lieutenant Governor Duncan. We we talked earlier about the fact that there are women who have been upset about uh, the way he handled committee assignments, even though he did have four women on committees there. Uh, he, uh, since we got on the air, and it certainly wasn't because of us, but he issued a statement. Uh, about committee assignments. He says, at the beginning of every two-year term, the Senate Committee on Assignments has the task of populating 27 standing committees. The committee worked diligently to position consensus builders, double the number of committees chaired by female senators, ensure the minority party was afforded unique opportunities. It's a difficult process, and here's the key line. Any insinuation that this year's process was discriminatory is nonsense. He's feeling the pressure, Greg. He's feeling the pressure, and it's and it's not uh, it's not entirely on him too. It's on it's on the senators who control the actual caucus too. So as he said yesterday in that interview, he was blindsided. He admitted it. He was blindsided by some of these rule changes. All right, I just wanted to get to that before the show uh, was over today. Um, having said all that. Uh, Kyle Hayes, thank you for joining us from Washington. Get back into the cauldron up there, Kyle. Yeah, we'll look forward to the new uh, Peach Pod podcast on uh, Friday. Charles Cook, thank you. Leo Smith, Ed Lindsay, Greg Bluestein. What a really terrific conversation. Thanks for joining us for the show. Uh, thank you out there for being with us. We'll be back again on Friday for uh, Political Rewind. And remember, you can now watch Political Rewind on GPB-TV on Friday nights at 7 o'clock. What a thrill. Take care.